0: Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are illiquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So, if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at Aventure.vc. That's A V E N T U R E.VC. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the US or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only, and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or non-accredited, Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So, if you want to be the first to know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Our guest today is Anthony Zhang, founder of VinoVest. VinoVest allows you to invest in wine globally without leaving your home and without storing it yourself. He also previously founded Enjoy Now and Know Your VC. We discuss his introduction to entrepreneurship, what it was like coming back from a spinal injury and guide Enjoy Now to a successful exit, why he started VinoVest. How people were investing in wine previously and how he thinks about growth. Without further ado, here's Anthony. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you?
1: Mike, I'm doing well. Glad to be on here.
0: Thanks so much for taking the time. So, throughout your entire career, you've been an entrepreneur, you've founded three companies, and you know, have have had two exits, and now you're on you know VinaVest, which we'll obviously talk um, the majority of of on on the show about. But I wanted to ask: Did you always think that you were going to be an entrepreneur, or maybe what was like their first inkling that entrepreneurship might be like the the path for you?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think just in high school, um, I had created my first, I guess, club. It wasn't even uh, a company, but it was a. Club that we would work with the local Boys and Girls Club, um, and it was to provide study and test materials and textbooks to um, underserved uh, peers and other students. So we would gather a lot of used SAT, ACT textbooks around the community. Um, we would not only just donate them to the Boys and Girls Club, but a lot of you know a lot of us that were you know, sophomores, juniors, seniors who were already prepping or already had taken it, we would be peer tutors as well. Um, That was just my first time creating something out of nothing. Um, And it it just felt really good, right? Just having the control to be able to um, to chart the path that you want to see, create something that doesn't exist in the world. Um, That was a really solid feeling. Um, And that's what also helped me decide that I wanted to take a few entrepreneurship classes in college. And uh, even before I enrolled in my first one, uh, in my first semester, I, I ended up starting my my first side hustle, which turned into Envoy Now, which was my first food delivery business. So, I think everyone everything just kind of snowballed really quickly after that. Uh, I ended up, you know, getting getting funding, getting getting the opportunity to drop out of school with the Teal Fellowship, and really haven't looked back since.
0: That's that's awesome, and I I appreciate you sharing that story about in high school about it was you know. Uh, a means to kind of be creative thinking a little outside the box. And um, and then you, you just became fascinated, I guess, with just doing things um, yourself um, instead of, you know, I guess, relying on other people, which is, which is awesome. Wanted to talk a bit about Envoy now and the journey with, with that endeavor. Um, I know it was a, um, a food delivery app um, focused, targeted towards the college market. Um, And um, I, and you were, so you were the CEO of Envoy now, you started it, you, um, uh, Mark Cuban came to town, you were able to raise a hundred K from him and then from maybe other investors. Um, you then suffer this, you know, incredible, um, accident, um, unbelievable where you get paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and had to, uh, of course, you know, take a step back from the business, uh, for a few months where you had to recover and, um, and go through that entire And when you came back into the business, it was very different to how you left it. It seemed like it was in a pretty good spot when you were, when you left it, where what I've read is, you know, your kind of co-founders wanted out. um, The business's future was very much, it was very, it was very unclear to say the least. What was that moment like when you are like, what was your thought process on returning to Envoy now? And, why did you decide to come back? And did you? Um, and what was also like? How you thought about yourself as a leader, having to lead people through these, you know, um, through these times where um, where you're in the position that you were, and kind of all of that. Like, what was kind of like your thought process during that period? Yeah, so
1: a oh, lot to unpack there. Um, I've been running the business for about maybe two and a half years. At that point, uh, you know, things were going well. We were expanding to more and more markets around the nation. And, um, you know, I had my spinal cord injury accident then, you know, that completely put me out of commission. Um, you know, I was relearning to do the most basic things in life, like even breathe without the help of a ventilator. Right. And learning how to even hold, hold a fork to feed myself. Right. And that was what I was concerned with was just whether I could even get through each day. Um, and about six months after my injury, I was still you know, in intensive rehabilitation, inpatient at the hospital. And I got a call from a couple of my co-founders and they're just like, Hey, um, you know, we, we want out, right. We don't think that we can run this. We think that we should just give the existing money back to our VCs and we should just shut it down. And I think at that point, you know, I was at a pretty low point in my life and I didn't really have much else, right. My, my, big part of my identity was on point now. Right. And, um, for those of you who don't know what recovering like from a spinal cord injury is like, it's, it's very, very slow, um, you know, neurological injuries, uh, it's really not even guaranteed that you'll get better at all. Um, and I think at that point, right, I was so focused on one aspect of my life that, um, I needed balance too. And, I wanted to be able to have something else to be able to occupy my time with, to think about and that I love, which was you know, running my business. So something inside me was just like, all right, well, I'm not going to just have this thing fold over. Um, you know, it's so much promise. I love the people that I was working with. And I, I really believe that we could be able to get a better outcome than just, you know, giving money back to investors and shutting down. So I, I took over a CEO. I, I remember this zoom call with, at that point there was like you know we had 20 something managers one for each of our markets uh, a couple other uh, senior leaders in the company i was like hey uh calling in from the rehab hospital right this is the first time they'd seen me in 6 months and i was like all right first of all i'm all right i'm i'm breathing i'm talking um i'm 100% there i'm still anthony right my my brain is still there and you know i've got this bad news right my co-founders are are leaving the company but I want to come back as CEO. I think that we all, you know, believe in this company, all joined for a reason. We can create a better outcome for this company, but we're going to need to dig deep. Right. We had had a few acquisition talks, um, you know, throughout the years that it all just turned down. But at the time in the market, there was a lot of consolidation in the food delivery app space. So I was like, all right, I think we can reach out, get, have potential buyers And in the meantime, let's take the next six to nine months to turn the business around so that we're more attractive, attractive as a target. So we gave ourselves a very firm timeline to get acquired. Um, You know, I told them, like, hey, I'm still going to be in in rehab, so um, I won't be able to be back at the office. I'll I'll be there strategically and there to help with Zoom calls and things like that. But um, everyone's going to have to step it up, right? 120 percent. And let's. Let's see if we can turn the business around and get acquired. And that was kind of the the mission. And, and that's that's what we, you know, very thankfully, were able to have a few successful you know, acquisition offers and end up choosing the one that was the best fit for us.
0: That's, that's unbelievable. I mean, you're recovering from one of the worst, you know, accidents, you know, a person could have. And you then decide to regain, you know, the reins of CEO and don't want to, you know, um, just have the company return your money to investors and kind of have the company casually write down and actually orchestrate, you know, a successful exit um, over the next six months. And I've obviously still grow the business. I mean, wow, that's just really, really incredible, Anthony.
1: Yeah, thank you. And it was definitely, I mean, in, in my mind, right, it was the only option. And I was like, all these people, like they, they left their previous jobs to join us, right? Like there's, there's like, livelihoods on the line, right? And you know we just I just firmly believe that like we all deserved just at least a shot at a better outcome rather than just going the default and rolling over and giving up
0: did you did you feel like you were under a lot more pressure as this because because as you you know said before, you were running the company, the company was kind of swimming along hum- humming along for you know two years. what was it like, and did you have to maybe change your leadership style at all um to what to what um Prior to the accident, and um, and when the running and, and the company was humming along, b- versus when you went back into the company and things were weren't in a, a, a ideal state.
1: I think I I had to force myself to be able to delegate and empower others better. Right, I physically couldn't do as much as I used to be able to do, um, and I just didn't also have the the sort of context. Right, I couldn't be. Going around to different markets, right? I was still doing five to six hours of physical therapy and occupational therapy a day. So, I'm just learning to let go a little bit more and trust others, right? And and give them the space to be able to rise up, right? To to
0: the challenge. Got it. Got it. No, that 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 makes um, a ton of sense. Um, so after after you then had the successful uh, the the exit with with Envoy now, what then did you ponder or think about doing next? I know that led to know your VC, but like, what was your, um, what was kind of your, your mindset?
1: Yeah. I think just, first of all, just enjoying at least at first the, the transition, right. And learning what it's like to operate within a, a much larger company. That was a, you know, a big, uh, a big experience for me, but I think I always knew that I wanted to move on to something else, right food delivery, you know, being being a college student, being a college age founder, running a college food delivery business, that made sense to me, right? But I was getting older and, you know, I didn't want to do college food delivery for the rest of my life, right? And um, I think at that at that time, I'd started angel investing. Um, it was around 2017. So uh, it was around the time where in Silicon Valley, there were a lot of really high profile VCs that were kind of getting outed in the news for some pretty terrible things they've done, right? Like racial discrimination, sexual harassment, like, you know, very similar to the stuff that was going on in Hollywood with the whole Me Too movement and, you know, Harvey Weinstein and stuff. So that kind of created the catalyst for the idea for New Year VC, which was kind of like a, a glass door or a Yelp for rating angel investors and venture capitalists. And I think just because of the social climate at the time, that that site really blew up. You know, we were getting you know, hundreds of thousands of searches every single month on VCs, and not just founders rating VCs, but VCs rating other VCs, LPs looking at VCs profiles, um, and and that was uh, you know really not something that I expected to be uh, my my next thing to work on, but it was something that I was passionate about. Just felt there needed to be more transparency in the space, and a few buddies and I just kind of put together. The project and launched it in, in in the matter of I think like two and a half weeks from from the first time that we talked to each other.
0: Wow, that's um that's um it's it's just interesting how that was all you you kind of were seeing and noticing what was happening um across different verticals, different landscapes with you know the Me Too movement and also um and others, and you wanted to to see how. Um, how actually you can be um, of of help or benefit when it came to the space that you knew, that you knew quite well, which was um, the venture space. That's awesome. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. You know, fundraising was never easy. Right. And like, as a, as a guy, I didn't really experience any sort of harassment or discrimination or anything like that. And then, you know, just talking with a few other friends that, you know, were were women or from other minority backgrounds. Like it just, yeah, it just felt wrong. Right. Just, not being able to do anything about it. So it's like, all right, this this site needs to be out there, right? For I don't care if we make zero money
0: out of it. Like, it just needs to be out there. Were you able to get traction pretty quickly with, with Know Your VC?
1: Yeah, I think just because of the climate at the time, right? Like, everyone was asking each other about their experiences with VCs, right? So this behavior was already happening. And, you know, people were still wary of of disclosing information as well. So there were just a lot of chatter in a bunch of different places. So this was kind of just like the productized version of what was already going on. And I think that was that was a case in which like timing was everything. I think with a lot of companies, timing is everything. But we would not have been able to grow as quickly as we did if if it weren't for just you know the the news cycle and the chatter that was already happening.
0: No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so what I guess you. You do well with Know Your VC. You're you're able to. Um, I know it. It eventually gets acquired. What what led you then to wine? Were you always passionate about wine? Uh, was that something that was always um, of interest to you?
1: Yeah, I'd always loved wine. Um, you yes, know, as was um, you know, growing up in in Asia. Uh, so in Hong Kong and Beijing when I was growing up. Wine was a big part of the culture, especially wine from France, from Bordeaux, from Burgundy. And I just always thought it was a really cool thing to do. So after, after selling Envoy Now, I started collecting wine. Um, and, it, you know, small hobby turned into a, a bigger hobby. And it, you know, quickly got out of hand. And I realized, all right, most people don't have the time or energy to, to do this properly. And it's not scalable unless you have a lot of resources. And that kind of got me to thinking, like, all right, maybe there's a better way to do this. How can we get more people into this market? How can we make wine collecting and investing more accessible? Um, and, and that's kind of what led to some some early conversations with my, you know, then co-worker, now co-founder, Brent. And we decided to launch, launch VinoVest.
0: Were you collecting wine in order to turn a profit, which I know that that is um, the genesis of VinoVest? Or were you initially... Were you collecting wine because you obviously, I know you love wine, but eventually to, to, to drink it at the right time? It was a little bit of both.
1: Um, yeah, I would, I'd be buying, say, 10 cases of the wine, um, sitting on them for a few years, and then maybe selling a few cases to cover my cost basis so I could drink, essentially, like wine on the house. That, would, that was my initial sort of genesis, so a little bit of both. but I wanted to drink this amazing wine. But also realize that it could be more valuable as as it aged, as long as you age it properly and pick the right wine. So um, I think a you know combination of that passion portion and then also the the
0: profit driven portion as well. So what were what was the first when you w- when you got thinking about how you were collecting wine and okay, can we make this more accessible and maybe turn it into you know an alternative asset class, but kind of like more an actual product itself that. You can actually, you know, it can be really easy to um to invest in wine and maybe you don't have to worry about the storage as much. Um and 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 that sort of thing. What were kind of the first steps to founding VinoVest? Did you initially I'd imagine you had to get the wine sellers and the vineyards on board?
1: Yep. So in, in the early days, right? It was just me and my co-founder really doing everything, right? We had found the right relationships with the storage facilities, we would found the right access with the suppliers and you know the right insurance as well to be able to manage this ourselves. But none of it was really tech driven, right? It was just a bunch of different contacts on a bunch of different spreadsheets and emails and websites. So VinoVest was really um, the way to just abstract all that into the background and productize what we were already doing. Um, so when we launched, it was really just a wait list, right? We we designed something on Unbounce. We put it out. We spent about $300, $500 in Facebook ads and collected a bunch of leads. And we talked to each one of those leads. We're like, hey, like, what do you want out of this service? right? Have you invested in wine before? How much would you want to put in? Um, you know, What are the things that you would need taken care of to warrant paying for a service like this? And just did a lot of user interviews. And I think at that point, we had nearly half a million dollars in demand. So we're like, all right, well, this works. We have We have... in Facebook ads turned into 500, uh, sorry, $500,000 in demand. Um, and we're like, all right, let's, let's build this. Right. And that was kind of the proof points that we needed to be able to launch because we've been talking to friends about investing in wine and even people who I know don't even drink wine were interested. Right. And that's what kind of lit lit the fire under, you know, kind of under our asses was like, Hey, this could be much bigger than just for people who like wine. And of course there's hundreds of millions of people who like wine, but, if people can see it in as a collectible item, as an asset, irregardless of their taste preferences, right? That's what really opens it up to be a much larger and more exciting opportunity.
0: And when in terms of what you were doing on the op side and how the operations work, are you going to vineyards, I guess, purchasing the wine and then putting it into your finding your own storage facilities and then putting that wine into storage facilities and then putting a price on the wine um, up on Vinovest or like what what's kind of the structure in terms of how it actually works overall from an operations standpoint.
1: Yeah, so you know, an investor will come to us and say like, "Hey, I want to invest $10,000, right? I here are some of my preference around how long I'm expecting to hold this wine for." And based on that, we have uh, an an algorithm that creates a strategy on how we want to allocate uh, that person's portfolio, right? And then we'll go out to our winery supply partners, right? Get the right wines that fit that person's portfolio and then store them. Um, so oftentimes we share storage facilities or have the same storage network as as our winery partners. So the wine never needs to move. Um, so French wine is in France, right? American wine over here by, you know, with all the major wine growing regions. And then we'll inspect the wine, insure it, and custody it for, for the customer. And then they can see on their dashboard, just like any other asset, price fluctuations as, as the portfolio grows, information, research, analysis about what they own, why this wine is doing what it is, and really be able to be engaged along this journey as well.
0: I'd love to like break down in terms of like the life cycle of a fine wine and what fluctuates either going up or even maybe going down. Um, like, is it always, is it always going to be, is it always usually going to land at the same price or, um, what the, what that end price is going to be, or how do you think about, how do you think about that? And also display that to your, um, to, to people that are, you know, uh, participating on, on VinoVest.
1: Yeah. Great question. So with wine appreciation, there's a few key factors. Um, number one is the ageability of the wine, right? Most wine produced in the world. It's meant to be consumed within a few years. Um, but really that tops sort are of like 5%, 10% of all wine produced. That's what we're looking at that. All right. It has, it can age 10, 20, 30 years. So it's a long lifeline. Um, and every single year when it's out there, people are drinking it, right? So there's less and less supply as time goes on. And so not only does that wine become more scarce, it also appreciates in value because the taste profile changes to be more desirable. So those two factors help to create Uh, demand and increased pricing pressure that leads to pretty steady increases for wine as it ages. Um, Very, very different depending on the vintage of the wine, depending on where the wine's from, what type of wine it is. So what we do is we look at historical vintages, right? So say if you're buying a new wine from the year 2021, uh, you can look at the same winery and look at what the 2011 did, right? Now that that thing is 10 years out in the market, you can kind of see what the pricing patterns will look like at year one, at year five, at year 10, and, you know, even, even beyond. So those are kind of the comps that we can show when we're making these pricing decisions, when, when we're helping to educate the client to show them what they can reasonably look at Um, obviously they're not the exact vintage, right? There's different weather conditions, supply conditions, and, and taste profiles that make each year so unique, but it is a really good proxy, especially with wineries that have been, producing wines consistently for, you know, 50,
0: 100 years. Well, in terms of making, you know, a particular vintage, you know, unique, um, is that something I'd imagine that's based off of maybe weather patterns or just what have you that specific year? Is that something that you can figure out pretty quickly um, if the, if, if this particular vintage is going to be great, or is that something that might take years to really distinguish or understand Um, if that vintage, if that particular vintage will be one that, you know, does really well. And, um, just how do you think about from it, from that perspective?
1: Yeah, usually, um, you can tell pretty early that this is going to be great or okay, right? It all starts in the vineyards, in the harvest. So, you know, with our relationship managers, you know, they're, they're talking to the winemakers regularly to kind of see, all right, you know, how's this harvest looking up? What are the yields looking like? And what can we kind of reasonably expect? And even before that wine is bottled and sold to the public, um, you know, critics and industry insiders get the opportunity to taste the wine, right? Then they can kind of start to form some initial opinions on what that's going to be like. Um, I'd say there are cases in which um, things may have been so-so or not so great in the beginning and the wine actually got a lot better than people expected when they retaste it. Usually they retaste every five to 10 years. Um, and usually when it comes out really, really highly rated, it's going to continue to be good, right? The, the wine doesn't really get worse with age. Um, so those are kind of the, some of the signals that we see um, in the market. And, you know, the, really it's, it's up to the consumer taste and preference as well, right? If there certainly just is a, a ton of high demand for a certain region, people don't really care if it's rated a 95 versus a 96, right? They're just going to take all of it. Um, so the, the big factor, the big X factor is the consumption market.
0: So so the consumption market is what then is is the actual risk factor per se, in terms of what the price is based off of. Is that roughly right?
1: Yeah, I, I would say so, right? Because um, that's the eventual consumer, right? That's who we will sell to is someone who's planning on drinking that wine, or maybe they want to age that wine for a few more years longer before drinking it, but um Right. All, all wine is going to be consumed by someone at some point someday. Um, and it's just kind of a determinant of, of the price, right? If someone, uh, if people prefer the taste of wine that's 10 years old, right, would they rather pay $100 and wait 10 years or would they rather pay $300 and have it now, right? And that's kind of the, the choice that people are making, um, uh, every day on a consumption basis.
0: So in terms of the actual risk, that you since you find out pretty early when it comes to if that vintage is going to, you know, take off and it's going to be a great wine or, you know, just so-so, I'd imagine then when when someone's on, you know, the Vena vest site and thinking about, you know, purchasing wine, then then you're going to get become a lot more accurate in terms of what the price is going to be in the future, right? Since you don't since that's already in some ways um, taken care of, or I guess priced in that, um, that risk. Is that, is that roughly right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: How profitable is wine as an investment?
1: So historically, when we look at wine returns, we look to the LiveX 1000, which is kind of our, our benchmark in the market when we're talking about wine returns. And when people say, oh, like wine returned 10% last year, right? That's, that's the index that they refer to. Um, Historically, that has been around 10% a year. Um, So pretty steady annual returns. um, And it's something that we at VinoVest, we look at that benchmark and we try to beat it every year.
0: Cool. Cool. That's that's great. Um, Do you also, I understand that you've built a market where people can invest in wine. And that's great. Um, Obviously, the wine's going to be at a peak at some point in time. Um, whether it's, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, you know, and obviously, that's part of the beauty, depending on um, what the investor, you know, outlook or timeline wants to be, then they can kind of make a match make with those wines. But how does that transaction take place when it comes to actually selling the wines when they're at their peak, or when it actually makes sense? Is that something that 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 there's already kind of a market for? Or is that or is that a market that you've already built?
1: Yeah, so both there are existing markets for uh, selling wine, um, and there's also one that we at VinoVest have ourselves as well. So our marketplace, um, you know, we process millions of dollars worth of wines of transactions every year, um, and we also connect with external parties as well. Right? Um, the world of wine is very fragmented. There's no sort of uh, you know New York Stock Exchange equivalent where everyone trades on the same market. There's Many small regional markets that we work with externally, and we also have our own. So, uh, for us, we just want the best price discovery opportunities, right? Whether whether it's uh, from you know, a European market or an Asian market or a North American market, we want to see all the data points to be able to make the best decisions and give our give our clients the most data to be able to make those informed decisions as well on when they want to when they want to sell.
0: And when they do want to sell. Is it the type of thing where VinoVest is saying, "Okay, this is this is a great price to sell at. This is what you should sell at." Or um, does the I'd imagine since you've actually invested in wine, then you have full choice in terms of what the actual price point you can sell the wine for. But how do you think about suggestion when it comes to um, when it and and, and kind of and relaying that to um, the, the the wine owner? when it comes to price so we do give guidance on selling
1: windows because you know to your point right the wine will peak in flavor at some point but it's not like milk in which like if you miss a day it's completely bad right it's a very gradual curve over the course of years as it matures so there's a pretty wide window of, of guidance that we give folks like hey anytime between 2027 and 2031 for example right and and within that, that's kind of like the range in which you should probably look to sell. Um, after the range, it doesn't mean that the wine is bad, right? It just is probably very, very mature. There are less and less people who like that more mature taste of wine. So your your demand right, or your potential market of buyers uh, decreases over time. Um, and that's that's kind of the, the general guidance that we give folks, right? We, we know it's up to them. They can set their own price. They can choose where and when to sell it or to hold on to it or drink it if they wanted to. But we're here to give you the, the information on when, say, like others may generally look to sell it.
0: Got it. And in terms of the price, um, that is the actual uh, owners of the wine. They're the ones that actually set the price in terms of um, what they want. Or or do, or does Vino Vest?
1: Uh, so they can set the price, right? Like they can, you know, say if they see, all right, this wine was traded at $100 a bottle last week. They probably want to set it at 100, right? Or maybe if they don't plan on selling it for a while, they just want to put up a limit order. They're like, hey, I'm going to put it at 150, right? If it ever hits there, I'm, I'm ready to sell it, right? And that may not hit for a while, but they can still post that out there to know that's that selling demand that somebody has at that price. So it's pretty much just like any market in which uh, that price discovery is really up to the individual um, and they can choose to sell it as, as quickly or as slowly as they want
0: how do you think about cuz it seems like you're trying to attract um different i guess profiles of people to Vest. you obviously have um the the vineyards and you know the the wine producers that that um that produce the wine you have you know the investors or people that actually purchase the wine that that want to um that you know you uh, think of this as an alternative asset and then you also have these these kind of third um I guess, profile people that actually the people that, that you hope the investors actually sell to, um, to actually consume the wine itself. How did you, how do you think overall about building, I guess, relationships? Because it, it, it's, it's kind of like three-sided per se. Um, how do you think about building like relationships in all three of these kind of categories?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely an ecosystem, right? Cause all of these parties and counterparties need to be able to interact and, be able to interact with each other for this whole thing to work, right? There's, there's the initial producer, there's, to your point, the buyer, and there can be many buyers and sellers, right, along the lifeline of, of, of wine and then the eventual drinker, right? And sometimes the buyer is the drinker, right? Or sometimes maybe the producer can be the drinker. So uh, not only are there, you know, multiple counterparties, but there's also multiple roles that the same counterparty could play. Um, and for us, we want to make it as open and transparent as as accessible as possible because anyone could be that collector or investor or buyer, right? And that's kind of what we see as our role is being able to provide the right access and the right data and transparency for this market to just work by itself because people have been doing this for hundreds, if not thousands of years, right? Wine is nothing new. The way it's produced and consumed and enjoyed is pretty much the same as they've they've done um you know for hundreds of years and it's also been used as currency and as a store of value for hundreds of years. So what we're doing is just modernizing the existing behavior and and being able to get a lot more people in.
0: What's been I I, I would say the hardest part to to build or to attract attention to? Is it is it getting the vineyards on board? Is it getting the getting people that actually want to invest in wine or maybe convince them that you know wine is a great asset to invest in or is it the people that you know eventually will be buying the wine in peak which of course you need a very robust i'd imagine people um that will be buying the wine because or else the people that actually have invested in the wine won't be able to actually exit on their opportunity
1: yeah i think all all are very important right they're all parts of the ecosystem that can't really survive without the other right if you can't buy the right supply, then that means that you're not able to attract the clients, right? they're like, oh, you you aren't able to get the right wines. But also, if you can't get the right supply, that means that the wines eventually when they're sold, they're not as desirable, right? Or there's not enough. So to me, like it all starts with the supply. Um, If you have quality assets that are then stored properly, right? And that they um, are managed correctly, there's always going to be a market for it, right? Because we're not Looking at, um, you know, there's really, it's really difficult to have like a up and comer that no one knows about in line because of the cycles, right? Like every, every vineyard can only produce one harvest a year and it takes many years to decide even if that wine is good. So it's just a very, very uh, forward looking and and long-term industry in which we know what the stars of the next five, six years are going to be today because of that long feedback cycle.
0: How do you also think about partnering? Cause there's also a lot of kind of wine startups where you, they might use, you know, they rent or, or use grapes from a vineyard and they might not have their own vineyard per se. Um, and there's a, a lot of wineries or, um, or wine brands that, that do that. How, what's your kind of vetting process um, when it comes to, I guess, new brands and, um, if they make sense to actually be on your platform.
1: So we, we typically don't work with new brands because of, uh, kind of what I mentioned, uh, because it just takes so long to even know what's the price of the wine in 20 years, right? So if you're not 20 years old as a winery, it's very difficult to know. Um, we do make some exceptions, right? If it's a very established winery that is opening up a new sort of label or product or project, right? You're able to kind of by proxy, get to know what the winery is all about, or, um, you know maybe it's a a really really talented winemaker that left to go start his or her own thing right or at a new winery right that that immediately gives this existing winery a boost in its profile um, so those are things that we'd look at um, but typically we we stick with things that are proven times that are you know kind of proven through time and 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 the market has has shown us as well
0: so why did you also i know you recently or fairly recently started whiskey vest as well with creating whiskey into an asset class what was what was that like and how did that kind of come come to fruition so for the whiskey
1: product it's something that we've been getting asked since pretty much since day one right wine and whiskey and other spirits they just go very well together right if you're into wine you're probably into whiskey or vice versa some people might not be into wine but really into whiskey um So we've launched this waitlist about a year ago, and that waitlist has really ballooned. Um, it's gone to over 15,000 people at this point. So we've been able to let in, you know, a few hundred people at uh, over the past few months, but it's something that the demand is there in the market. Similar to wine, it's very difficult to be able to acquire really high-end quality whiskey. Um, it ages as well, right? A, an 18-year-old scotch is going to cost more than the twelve, you know, 12-year-old scotch from the same brand. Um just because it takes more time, right? And because of evaporation, there's just less of it. Um, and very similar supply and demand dynamics as that as that whiskey cask ages and becomes more mature. And because we found a lot of parallels and um, our technology and the team's expertise also lends very well into this vertical. It's something that you know we're really excited to be able to launch fully out of pilot mode later this year, but it's really been a long time coming. And I think we've been kind of forced to do this because of the market demand.
0: That's great. That's great. What are there other verticals within, within alcohol that you're also thinking about could that, that, that could be on the horizon that are interesting to you?
1: I think anything back in age. So, you know, other spirits like tequila or rum, maybe someday, um, I think those markets are still underdeveloped. Not really investment worthy really today or not big enough of a market, but that could change right I think bourbon, especially in the past five ten years, has shown us a huge sort of resurgence in popularity and um, that's kind of led led the way at least for the American whiskey market, same with Japanese whiskey right um, so who knows what what the sort of next uh, you know next bourbon could be
0: have you also found that given like the macroeconomic climate and all that's happening in the world, that people are more open to investing in alternative assets, like, like wine. Um, like I know that you compare yourselves, for example, like the S and P 500 and, and what have you.
1: Yeah. I think especially because there are less resilient options in the world, um, people are more open to exploring. Um, you've got a ton of folks who maybe signed up a year ago, even haven't, become a customer they're coming back now they're like all right maybe investing in wine isn't so crazy right or maybe I've learned a little bit more about the market and this seems like something I can maybe park a little bit of money in now given that you know stocks and crypto and everything else has gone to shit so I think also it's like the comparative value of it right when when the S&P was giving everyone 20% a year returns 10% doesn't look that good right but now that it's continued to give you 10% plus returns. And it's, you know, it's going to ride out a lot of the volatility that we've seen people like, all right, I'll, I can take that 10% all day now, right. Especially if it's not going to drop 80%, like a lot of tech stocks have and give people, you know, that sort of peace of mind in terms of knowing that, Hey, this is something that is a real product. It has real utility. People drink it and the, the dynamics of why the price goes up and down are are pretty simple to understand as well.
0: I totally get that. Do you do you also feel like when there's been a recession or or a down market and that then when it comes to if you actually are a wine, if you actually are a holder and maybe your wine is in, you know, during the peak period, does that then have a a effect when it comes to actual the price that you can sell your wine for? Since I presume that there might be people that are a bit tightening up their finances, maybe don't really want to spend as much. Like what are, what are, I guess, like the risk factors when you actually sell that maybe you should be paying attention to Um, like does, does like a down market affect you know, your ability to sell and should you wait until, you know, there's more of like a it's a better macro environment or does that, does that not matter as much if you found?
1: I think it certainly matters. Um, you know, recessions are going to affect everything, um, and I think the number one thing that we talk to clients is is aligning their uh, their sort of time horizon expectations. Right, this is not the stock market; it's not crypto. Right, it's it's not short term at all. Right, what fact what factors into wine prices is just the aging, and no one can slow down or speed that up. So, if you're looking to Buy a case of wine and sell it in a year or two, this is not the asset for you. This is a five-year hold, really at the minimum, because that's how long it takes for the wine to appreciate in a, in a different enough way for people to be able to want to pay a higher price for it. So that's really the, the main education, right? It, it's like real estate, right? It's like gold. You don't want to buy a house and then, you know, live in it and then sell it after six or nine months. Uh, so... For us, aligning those expectations is really important, which is, I think, also why it has been really resilient against recessions, right? Recessions maximum are like two, three years. So if you have a five-year, 10-year horizon, what happens in the next year or two doesn't really matter, right? You know you're going to sell it in the next 10 years. And by the time 10 years are up, it's going to be a much, much different macro picture.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like, because that kind of peak window is as you say it's not milk it's it's not like a day it's it's actually over you know 3 to 5 years um horizon let's say that then if there is like a recession for example or or something then you can actually then see it through and still maybe be in your peak period to sell um if you know prices have gone down for wine during a recession just just thinking because there might not just be as much demand for it um, so that's, uh, no, that's, that's really interesting. Um, what is, what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you, inspired you professionally? Ooh, that's a great one.
1: Um, I'll go with the one that I I just read. Um, this is called six types of working genius. Um, short read. I really loved it. It's basically just talking about like people's core competencies, you know, what really gives them energy and joy um, in their daily lives? And also what are the things that, um, you know, really suck the energy out of them, right? There's, uh, they've identified into six types. Usually people are really good at two. They really, really despise the other two and the other two are in the middle. And, um, you know, after reading it, it was initially a business book, but after reading it, I was talking to my wife. I'm like, what do you think your two, like, core working geniuses are, right? And how can that actually help our family when we're making decisions, right? Or, or just doing things that we need to do. Um, so personally, that actually was a really, really cool book to read and realize like, oh, um, maybe I shouldn't be doing as much of this because my wife actually enjoys it more. And maybe she shouldn't be doing much of that because not only does she not like it, it's something that I actually like more. So it really helped, I think, our balance. And um, also, you know, in, in in business, right? In our leadership team and in, in our company, right? You want to align your employees to do things that give them the most energy and that can align to them having the highest impact in your, in your business. So that to me was kind of a double whammy was able to help out on, on both. Um, and then another one that I'm reading is called, I think 15 commitments of conscious leadership. So that also is one of these like hybrid help you in your personal life, help you in your business life type of books where, it just talks about the ways and situations in which you're able to encounter um, different forms of leadership and how, um, you know, how living, they have this concept called like living above the line and below the line, but like how living above the line and practicing these sort of principles and commitments can help, you know, some of the best leaders be able to lead uh, their organizations through tough times. And, you know, we've certainly all had had tough times over the last 12 months and, and probably the next 24 months and beyond.
0: No, for sure. I don't think we've had any other guests um, mention these two books. So really excited to add it to our book list. And this is great. Um, Very, very original, Anthony. Very original. That's awesome. Um, My final question to you is, what's one piece of advice that you had for for founders? I think right
1: now it's just figure out ways to stay alive, right? The The funding environment is tough, right? And multiples are down. Everyone in the venture market is, is hurting and they're all realigning their expectations. So I think a lot of times, you know, success is about survival, right? It's just about being the last person standing. So if you haven't already made the right measures to ensure your startup's profitability or viability for the next two or three years, like these are things that, are more important than anything right live to fight another day set yourself up for the long term don't expect to raise unless you're absolutely crushing it and even then you'll be surprised with how tough the market is and just survive right i think we've we've had this huge boom and bust in the last two years that was certainly unsustainable but just with how quickly the valuations have risen they're they're coming down just as fast right i think it's a huge adjustment for a lot of, a lot of founders business models and, and operating expenses and capital expenses to be able to align their expectations to the new market.
0: That's a great point. that's a great point and that and that's a you know excellent piece of advice when it comes to this money. Just kind of stay alive, think about obviously focus on cash flow, focus on um, on uh, um, burn and as well as you know this is a really tough funding environment too. so um, just focus on staying alive. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you for the
1: thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it.
0: And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Anthony. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Anthony underscore J underscore Zhang. If you're enjoying this podcast, also subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumerbc.com.